You're listening to a Toronto Centre podcast. Welcome. The goal of TC Podcasts is to spread the knowledge and accumulated experience of global leaders, experts, and world-renowned specialists in financial supervision and regulation. In each episode, we'll delve into some of today's most pressing issues as it relates to financial supervision and regulation. The financial crisis, climate change, financial inclusion, fintech, and much more. Enjoy this episode. Hi, everyone. Welcome to TC Podcast on the Go. I'm Chun Hui Eng, Program Director from Toronto Centre. As financial supervisors, we work every day to safeguard financial stability so as to foster sustainable and inclusive economic growth. Yet, there are situations where financial stability is threatened by the failure of financial institutions. Large institutions but even small ones through contagion effects and loss of confidence in the system. It is a key part of our job as financial supervisors, as resolution authorities, to plan for such situations by first ensuring that financial institutions have plans to recover from stress periods. And second, if they do fail, that their failure does not threaten financial stability. And this is our topic today of recovery and resolution planning. In August 2020, Toronto Centre released two TC notes providing practical guidance to financial supervisors on recovery and resolution planning. The first is entitled Recovery Planning, and the second is Resolution Implications for Supervisors. Both TC notes are available on the Toronto Centre website. I have with me today the author of these two TC notes, Clive Briault, to walk us through the main messages. Clive is the chair of Toronto Centre's Banking Advisory Board and a veteran program leader with us. With me today too is Claire McGuire, program leader with Toronto Centre. Clive, Claire, welcome both to the podcast. I would like to start by asking you to introduce yourself to our listeners and to talk a little bit about your experience and involvement in recovery and resolution planning. Let's start with Clive. Yes, certainly. Thanks Thanks very much. And thanks very much for having me along to speak today. Uh, my name's Clive Briault. Uh, I'm a former central banker and a former supervisor in the United Kingdom, uh, working for the Bank of England and the Financial Services Authority, respectively. Uh, and I've been working for the Toronto Centre since uh, 2008, uh, mostly as a programme leader, uh, but more recently as chair of the Toronto Centre's Banking Advisory Board. Uh, in terms of my own experience uh, of recovery planning and resolution, uh, some of that goes back to my days in the UK, where regrettably we suffered a series of uh, crises of one sort or another over the years, uh, but the largest of which, uh, as also happened in a number of other countries, was undoubtedly the global financial crisis, particularly between 2007 and 2008. Uh, and then during my time at the Toronto Centre, I've kept very closely in touch with uh, regulatory and supervisory developments, including uh, around recovery planning and resolution. Uh, I've 
I've led a number of uh, program sessions on those two subjects. Uh, and I've also led a number of uh, crisis simulation exercises run by the Toronto Center. Thank you, Clive. And Claire, would you like to introduce yourself? So I have worked um, on recovery and resolution planning in my work at the World Bank, doing reviews of countries that have put such processes in place, as well as advising countries on a proportional way to put into effect the FSB recommendations in this regard. Thank you both. Clive, could you define recovery planning and resolution planning for us? How are the two concepts linked and how are they different? Well, recovery planning is essentially about how a financial institution could recover from an adverse shock to its solvency, liquidity, or other resources. So the financial institution has a problem, but hopefully by activating its recovery plan, it can restore its financial health and then continue operating as a going concern. And that is why a recovery plan is prepared by and owned by the financial institution itself because it is the financial institution that will activate the recovery plan if and when it is needed. Resolution planning is different because it is for situations where a recovery plan has failed. So a financial institution has failed or is failing and is no longer viable as an institution. At that point, the authorities take charge so a resolution plan is owned and activated by a resolution authority. At that point, it is out of control of the failed financial institution. Perhaps it's just worth adding here by way of background um, how we got to resolution in particular. Ahead of the global financial crisis, there used to be three main options for dealing with a failed financial institution. First, to find a private sector buyer. Second, to put the firm into liquidation. Or third, for the government to step in and to use taxpayers' money to support the failed institution, be it through a guarantee or uh, an injection of capital or indeed full nationalization. But all of those were found during the global financial crisis to be problematic for a failing financial institution which was systemically important. The first, because it was probably too large to be able to find a private sector buyer quickly. Second, because if it was put into liquidation, that would be a very disruptive process. Remember Lehman Brothers. And third, if supported by the government, that would be potentially at a very high cost to taxpayers. So in 2011, the Financial Stability Board came up with what they called resolution, which was an alternative to liquidation or government intervention for systemically important financial institutions. And perhaps also important to note there that at that time, the Financial Stability Board uh, were very keen that resolution uh, was rolled out across all sectors, banking, insurance, securities and financial market infrastructures. Although to date, most of the emphasis, not quite all of it, but most of the emphasis has been on banks 
and clearing houses. Turning to Claire, recovery and resolution planning is not an entirely new concept, but the need for such planning really came into focus after the global financial crisis. Could you tell us about how international standards have evolved on this and who the international standard setters had in mind when they were coming up with those standards? After the great financial crisis of 2008-2009, it became clear that planning was needed for governments worldwide to do a better job on resolving their significant financial institutions. As a result, the Financial Stability Board put in place the key attributes. An important part of the key attributes was a recommendation that jurisdictions, particularly for their most significant financial institutions, put into effect recovery planning and resolution planning. Recovery planning would be something that an institution would engage in when it became under stress, but it could still come back into full compliance with all of the standards applied to it. Resolution planning is actually something that happens when an institution no longer is viable and has to go into a resolution process. So as a result of the FSB putting into effect the key attributes, jurisdictions around the world adopted these new ways of looking at both planning and how to resolve institutions, particularly the most significant in their jurisdiction, and in a proportionate way for the less significant institutions within their jurisdictions. Coming back to Clive, let's talk more about recovery plans. Could you walk us through the process of how a financial institution would go about preparing a recovery plan? And uh, what should financial supervisors expect to see in a robust recovery plan? A recovery plan is typically prepared by some combination of the risk management, financial and treasury uh, departments of a financial institution. But it's also very important that once it's been prepared in draft, that it is discussed and agreed by the senior management and the board of directors of the financial institution. Why is that? Well, first, because the recovery plan is likely to be triggered when the financial institution is facing the sorts of problems that senior management and the board should know about and deal with. It's facing serious financial difficulty. And second, because the recovery options themselves ought to require high level decisions within the financial institutions to activate them. Uh, so we might be talking there about raising new capital, finding new sources of funding or selling business lines or subsidiaries of the financial institution. So we're talking about major problems and we're talking about uh, major recovery options to address those problems. So in both cases, irrespective of who prepares the recovery plan in terms of the detail of it, it is for senior management and the board of directors to own it and activate it. The second part of the question, what should supervisors be looking for? Well, supervisors should be looking for a credible recovery plan. And that should be based on a range of clearly articulated severe but plausible, uh, firm-specific and market-wide stress scenarios, and indeed combinations of those. 
and they should cover both fast moving events and slower moving events. And the financial institution um, should have identified a, a range of scenarios which, which covers all of those things which might cause it uh, serious financial difficulty. It should then analyze the potential impact of those scenarios on the financial institution's profitability, capital, liquidity, credit rating, uh, cost of raising funding, likely response of external counterparties, operational capacity, uh, and its ability to provide uh, critical functions uh, such as uh, payment systems, uh, large-scale deposit taking, lending to small and medium-sized enterprises, and so on. And the next thing that should be in place is a set of early warning indicators and triggers which indicate when recovery options need to be activated. And the trigger framework there should identify a set of predefined criteria which enable the financial institution to monitor uh, when it may be necessary to take a recovery action and also then to escalate that decision and activate the decision so that appropriate responses can be taken uh, given the emerging stress event. So clearly what a financial institution also needs is a range of recovery options which it could activate to restore its financial position and indeed to restore market confidence in its viability following an adverse shock. Uh, and the activation of those options should enable the institution to survive uh, a range of severe stressed scenarios. The recovery options therefore need to be sufficiently comprehensive to enable the institution to respond effectively to a range of scenarios. They need to be well thought through and they need to be capable of being implemented within the time period available. And then the final thing which supervisors should be looking for is that those recovery options are indeed credible and feasible. Would they actually deliver what the financial institution might need in a severe stressed scenario? Uh, and they should also therefore be looking at whether or not the financial institution has tested those recovery options as far as possible. Now you cannot literally test uh, fully the sale of a subsidiary to somebody else, uh, but what you can do uh, is test the market. Uh, you can sound out whether people might be interested in buying uh, part of your business and at what price. Uh, you can test out the circumstances in which people might want to inject capital into your business and on what terms. Uh, you can test whether people might be prepared to offer you additional funding and at what price given the potential circumstances. So that's, that's really the range of elements of a recovery plan which should be in place and which supervisors should definitely be looking to ensure are in place. Clive, I just want to pick up on something that you said that it is critical that the board and senior management you know, have ownership of the recovery plan for it to have a chance of being successfully executed during a stress period. So how can financial supervisors test whether the institution has ownership, the board has ownership of this recovery plan? Well, the simplest way to test that is to ask them directly. 
Uh, and in these days of COVID-19, that might mean asking them directly over the telephone uh, or in a video conference call. Uh, so you could ask individual members of the board, individual members of senior management uh, to explain uh, in broad terms what the recovery plan looks like, to explain when the recovery plan was discussed by senior management and when it was discussed by the board, and importantly, what changes were made as a result of those discussions? Where is the evidence that those discussions led to changes uh, which resulted in a recovery plan which the senior management and the board felt that they were able to approve? So it's partly by asking people that direct question. And if you want the evidence, the evidence should be in the minutes of the board meeting at which the recovery plan was discussed and agreed. So ask for a copy of those minutes, uh, have a look and see if those minutes evidence that there was a proper and full discussion and that only as a result of that proper and full discussion was the board prepared to approve the recovery plan. For those banking and insurance supervisors who are used to reviewing ICAPs and ORSAs, they will know what I'm talking about. Uh, there is something similar there. They should also be approved by senior management of the board. And again, it's the same process of looking for evidence uh, that that has happened. Um, and again, there's no reason why supervisors should not ask members of senior management from the board what it is that satisfies them that the recovery plan is credible. What is it that convinces them that there's a sufficiently wide range of scenarios uh, and a sufficient range of feasible, credible recovery options which would deliver uh, the restoration of the financial health of a financial institution if and when it was needed? So ask the questions, ask for the evidence. Now, it seems that the recovery plan can be rather complex for a large institution that operates cross-border in many jurisdictions, and one that is doing not only banking business, but other businesses such as insurance and securities. Claire, could you talk about some of these complexities and what supervisors should expect to see in the recovery plan of such institutions to deal with cross-border and cross-sectoral issues? First of all, the recovery plan should lay out very clearly what is the structure of the institution? Where do they have operations? How are those operations run? What is the connection to the main office? And secondly, if there are cross-border aspects to an institution, the different legal frameworks that might govern those operations need to be considered. If they are operating in a jurisdiction that may, for example, have a very different bankruptcy regime, that should be noted and addressed in the recovery plan. There may also be different structures within different jurisdictions for uh, institutions to have to make certain disclosures. If there is, for example, a stress effect in impact on an institution in one jurisdiction, it may be that another jurisdiction would require some kind of disclosure of that stress effect. These are all issues that should be addressed in the recovery planning process and should be definitely put laid out for the supervisor to understand exactly what might happen if, in fact, the recovery plan had to be put into effect. Let's move now to talk about the resolution plan 
which kicks in when the recovery plan has failed, basically. Clive, before we go on to talk about the plan itself, could you remind us of the objectives of a resolution framework? Yes, the objectives of the resolution framework uh, really go back to the situation that the Financial Stability Board was focusing on immediately after the uh, global financial crisis, when, as I said earlier, they discovered that the options available to the authorities during the crisis uh, were not sufficient. And really the objectives drop out of that. So the first objective, which is why resolution is focused primarily on systemically important financial institutions, is to ensure the continuity of the critical functions provided by those systemically important financial institutions. So the ones who are providing payment, clearing, settlement, custody services, uh, large-scale retail deposit taking and retail lending, uh, lending to small and medium-sized enterprises, market-making in securities such as government bonds, uh, property motor and health insurance, employer liability insurance, life insurance, national pension schemes. Those kind of critical functions which if a systemically important financial institution went into liquidation, uh, those critical functions would end and they would end in a way which was messy and costly for the financial system, but also for the rest of the real economy and consumers and corporates and indeed governments in the real economy. So the Financial Stability Board's resolution framework is intended to preserve the continuity of those critical functions uh, and to minimize the contagion and interconnectedness uh, difficulties that might arise if a systemically important financial institution were to fail. The second objective uh, is to reduce the potential cost to taxpayers. Uh, so if we have a failed financial institution, somebody has to meet the losses. Uh, and in some cases to recapitalize the failing institution uh, so that its critical functions can continue in some way. So the Financial Stability Board's resolution framework seeks to impose those costs not only on the shareholders of the financial institution, but also if necessary uh, on the creditors of the failing or failed financial institution. So that the losses and the cost of recapitalization is borne first by uh, the shareholders, second by the subordinated debt holders, and third, if necessary, by other unsecured and uninsured creditors of the failing financial institution. And that is also intended to reduce the moral hazard which arises from any expectation that public support will be available. And the third objective uh, is to try to ensure that the resolution process uh, is as rapid, transparent and predictable as possible. So although the failure of a systemically important financial institution is always likely to be a bit messy, uh, there should be legal and procedural clarity and a lot of advanced planning undertaken uh, so that a, an orderly resolution can take place, uh, which avoids the unnecessary destruction of value, 
provides incentives for market-based solutions as part of the restructuring process and also meets the first two objectives to ensure the continuity of critical functions and reduce the potential cost to taxpayers. Claire, those objectives should be top of mind for the drafter of the resolution plan. I understand that the resolution authority is usually the one drafting these plans, but what range of practices have you seen as to who drafts these plans? It is true that in some jurisdictions, the resolution authorities draft the plans. Of course, they would be basing them on information they would receive from the institutions, most likely during the recovery planning process. A recovery plan should have an awful lot of information in it that would then translate into the, the uh, resolution planning process. But there are a number of jurisdictions, Canada being one uh, notable one, that has asked the significant financial institutions to themselves prepare their resolution plans. Now, if that is the practice in a country, it is very important that the institutions regulators can actually review and look at that resolution plan and understand whether or not it's fit for purpose. This kind of practice can also be helpful in jurisdictions that may have foreign uh, operations where the parent company has already engaged in the recovery planning and resolution planning process with their home supervisor. It could very well be that that would be helpful in doing a resolution plan in a smaller jurisdiction. And that again, the resolution plan would be reviewed by the authorities to make sure that it met all of its requirements. Claire, let's talk a bit about funding for resolutions. It's usually a critical issue and one that is often loaded with political implications. Could you talk about the policy considerations with respect to resolution funding? This is one of the most difficult areas of resolution planning, especially with cross-border institutions. For example, during the great financial crisis, one of the big issues that got in the way of doing a really big resolution of certain cross-border institutions was the issue of burden sharing. Who was going to pay for what? So the idea of doing a resolution plan, you have to be able to identify sources of funding to put that plan into effect. And in some jurisdictions, it may be that the deposit insurer can in fact contribute in some way to a resolution. A good practice would be that a deposit insurer can pay for insured deposits that are transferred to an acquiring institution as if it was a payout, because in fact, it's a substitute for paying out those insured deposits if that institution were to be put into liquidation. The problem with looking to the deposit insurer for uh, much more funding than that, however, is that deposit insurers are not designed to deal with systemic crises. They are supposed to be paying insured deposits when a bank fails. And if you look to them for more than that, it could well be that their funding would be impaired so that if, in fact, they contributed to a systemic resolution and then a smaller bank failed, they wouldn't have at the ready the funds to pay insured depositors. So usually there are some very detailed restrictions on the use of deposit insurance funds in resolution. Clive, turning back to you. I wonder if you could share some highlights from your experience about situations where recovery plans or resolution plans have gone well or gone not so well with the benefit of hindsight and the lessons that we can learn from those situations. 
Thank you. Let me, if I may, just just talk about three examples relating to resolution. First, a successful use of the resolution tools, including the bail-in power. Uh, that was the case of a Spanish bank called Banco Popular, uh, which ran into difficulties. It was judged to be a systemically important bank. I think it was the sixth largest bank in Spain. And it was put into resolution by the Single Resolution Board, which is the resolution board for the European Union banking area. And having been put into resolution, what happened immediately was that the value of the shares and the subordinated debt held by the equity and bondholders of that institution was wiped out. Uh, so effectively, they bore the losses that the institution had run up. Having wiped out the value of the subordinated debt, it was then possible to sell Banco Popular to a larger institution, Banco Santander, uh, one of the two largest Spanish banks, uh, immediately after resolution was triggered. And it was sold to Banco Santander for one euro. And after that, Banco Santander recapitalized uh, Banco Popular uh, and it continued on that basis. So the important lesson there is that if you can use the resolution tools to wipe out the subordinated debt, that removes from the balance sheet uh, a proportion of the bank's liabilities, and it makes it more attractive to a third party private sector buyer to come in and effectively uh, take on the problem itself. Uh, so that's a very good example, a very neat example. Uh, life won't always be like that, but that was a very neat example of using the bail-in power uh, to impose the losses on subordinated debt holders as creditors of the failing bank, and then to move on from there. The second example, uh, we have not such a happy ending, uh, was the attempt to use resolution powers on some banks in Italy, where it was discovered that when they came to try to bail in the subordinated debt, they discovered that around half of that subordinated debt was in fact owned by retail depositors of the bank. So earlier in time, the bank had gone along to its retail depositors and said, why don't you buy an instrument which will give you a higher interest rate than you currently receive on your bank account? Um, and isn't that a good thing? So a lot of those retail depositors said yes. And no doubt quite a lot of them thought that the instrument they were buying still left them protected by the deposit insurance scheme. Uh, but unfortunately, because it was subordinated debt, it didn't. Uh, and if you are going to use your bail-in power to wipe out creditors, you do need to think first about who those creditors are that you're about to wipe out. Um, so in that particular case, uh, the only way around it was to declare the bank as having missold those subordinated debt to its retail depositors, uh, and the bank therefore had to compensate those particular holders of subordinated debt uh, out, of, out of other funds raised by wiping out yet more creditors. 
So, you know, you can, you can see that it really matters if you're a resolution authority to know the answer to the question, who holds the subordinated debt? And the final example is that there are quite a lot of examples around the world of where countries do have and have put in place through legislation the recommended powers and tools uh, set out by the Financial Stability Board, but have not required uh, their institutions to hold additional subordinated debt, uh, what is called loss-absorbing capacity. Uh, and you then find that when you come to try to use the bail-in tool, there's only a small amount of subordinated debt in place. This is particularly a problem in emerging economies who, who may not have a very developed capital market anyway, into which banks can sell debt. Uh, and the result of that is that the firepower is not available to undertake a Financial Stability Board style of resolution. Uh, so that is an example of not having set up in advance uh, the necessary uh, firepower, not having done sufficient resolution planning, uh, and you then find that the resolution tools are not very useful because that firepower is not in place. We are now in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic, a stress scenario that few of us would have predicted, but a situation that is proving to have severe consequences for financial institutions, possibly for a long time to come. So how do you see this pandemic changing the way financial institutions and financial supervisors, uh, the way they approach recovery planning and resolution planning and the expectations of these processes and also the broader issue of preparing for crises? Well, I think that although COVID-19 has undoubtedly had uh, a very wide range of impacts on the financial institutions, on the real economy, and on regulation and supervision. Uh, I don't think that it, that it makes a fundamental difference to recovery planning and resolution. Uh, it certainly reinforces uh, the need uh, to have recovery plans in place for a wide range of scenarios, including pandemics, uh, to have scenarios which include uh, some very severe macroeconomic effects and certainly scenarios which, as is the case with COVID-19, uh, there is a market-wide impact uh, and the fact that there is a market-wide impact can make it more difficult for individual financial institutions to activate certain recovery actions because some of those recovery actions may be assuming that the rest of the financial market and the rest of the economy uh, is continuing as normal. So I think it certainly reinforces the importance of recovery planning. It reinforces the importance of having a wide range of scenarios. Uh, but I don't think it introduces any fundamentally new elements. Uh, and similarly with resolution planning, uh, the essentials should already be in place. And the fact, again, that it's a market-wide problem, I think takes it back to one of my earlier comments about who holds the subordinated debt if you're gonna adopt a bail-in approach that, that wipes out the value of those creditors. Uh, and in this particular case, if 
those creditors are other major financial institutions. Um, and you're doing that at a time when they are also facing difficulties because of market-wide stresses, then again, it reinforces the need to know in advance who holds that subordinated debt uh, and to consider what impact it might have to wipe out the holders of that subordinated debt in particular scenarios. I think that this pandemic has shown that maybe the stress scenarios that we've been looking at in terms of recovery planning it, are not really comprehensive enough. For example, in the current situation, an institution may be faced with supply chain risk, technology risk from widespread remote operations, cash flow risk from fallen revenue generation, stress on internal controls from a rapid transformation to remote operations, and a risk to the institution's human capital based on a possibility that key employees may become incapacitated or be unwilling or unable to return to a physical facility. These are not the kinds of scenarios that have necessarily been considered in the past. And it may require a relook at stress scenarios and triggers for the purposes of recovery planning. Some may say that it is impossible to plan for situations like the COVID-19 pandemic. Now, in response to that view, Claire, we were talking about the Y2K episode back in the year 2000 and how that illustrated the importance of planning, even though the crisis may not be the one that was being planned for. Could you tell us about that and the lessons? In 1999, there was a worry that Y2K would result in widespread problems, particularly in the financial sector, as computers might not be able to make the shift from 1999 to the year 2000. And as you may remember, there was worldwide planning on this issue. There were Y2K task forces and things like that so that people could consider what might happen and what impacts that might have on the financial institution. Financial institutions were required to come up with plans. They were required to test their systems, sort of the, the traditional resolution planning type of situation. But this, of course, was before the FSB had looked at resolution planning and recovery planning. A lot of work went into the Y2K planning. And as we may remember, 1999 turned into 2000, and it was a big fat zero. Nothing went wrong, everything worked perfectly well, and everyone was saying, wow, we did all that work, and we went into all that planning. But in the United States, not too long after, we had a dreadful situation, of course, when 9-11 happened, and it affected our major money center, New York City. So many of the plans that those institutions had put in place for Y2K were then put into operation, particularly remote operations, and it helped those institutions make a faster recovery from that devastating impact than they might have otherwise if planning for Y2K had not in fact taken place. I like what you said that it is not the plan itself that matters so much as the planning process itself. And that detailed planning is what makes the difference in the financial supervisor's capacity to respond to crises in a timely and decisive manner, whatever form that crisis may take. Yes, a famous statement by General Dwight Eisenhower was plans are worthless, but planning is everything. And the reason for that is that you can always adjust 
your planning process, if you have a lot of information, you can say, well, we might not need this, but we know how to do this now that we've done this planning process. We know where to find this information and that information. And that's because a plan, of course, is never going to lay out exactly what crisis scenario is going to unravel. But by doing planning, you find out how to get the information you need and also where you might have to ask for additional information that would be helpful in doing a plan. Just to add that here at the Toronto Centre, we are firm believers in planning and preparing for crises. And we find that crisis simulations are often a great way for financial supervisors to test their crisis planning. Crisis simulations and hands-on practice are really at the core of the many crisis preparedness programs that we run at the Toronto Centre. Now, Clive, you have been the game master of many crisis simulations in our programs. Could you tell us more about what these simulations aim to test and how they build capacity in financial supervisors to respond to crises? Yes, thank you for that question, because I think it's very important that authorities run crisis simulations on a regular basis, because that's really the only way of learning about how good your crisis preparedness is and to begin to test how effective it might be uh, in a crisis. So during the sort of simulations that Toronto Centre runs, uh, participants are confronted with uh, a stressed and potentially catastrophic financial crisis scenario and participants are expected to respond with actions, decisions, and communications to deal with uh, that stressed situation. Uh, and in reaching their decisions, participants have the capacity to communicate with other participants, financial institutions, the media, the general public, and indeed with authorities abroad, where it's a cross-border uh, simulation. So the key elements that, that the crisis simulation is intended to, to test uh, are first the effectiveness of communication among all the relevant parties during a financial crisis. Um, communication is an essential element of an effective crisis response. And that includes both communications uh, between uh, supervisory authorities uh, communications between supervisory authorities and central banks and ministries of finance and depositor and policy protection agencies, uh, but also external communication with the press and the public. Second, uh, clarity on decision-making procedures uh, within each authority and indeed between the relevant authorities responsible for the crisis response. An effective crisis response uh, usually requires that the authorities have well-defined procedures to address uh, the problems that are arising, that they are knowledgeable about their roles, their powers and their responsibilities, and that they are able to coordinate effectively uh, in response to a crisis. And the third, uh, a little bit more specific in terms of use of powers, uh, is how each authority uh, uses the crisis management tools available to it. So for supervisory authorities, that might include uh, remedial actions, 
decision making on declaring financial institutions to have failed or to be likely to fail. Uh, in a central bank, it might be on providing emergency liquidity assistance in deposit insurance and policy protection agencies on making payouts uh, and uh, possibly activating purchase and assumption type arrangements. Uh, and in resolution authorities, uh, their preparedness to use the Financial Stability Board style resolution powers and tools uh, and to have demonstrated that they have planned very carefully on how those tools might be used in practice. And last but not least, the Ministry of Finance uh, to be particularly involved if there's any question of using public funds at any point as part of the solution to the crisis. So all of those things uh, can be tested in a crisis simulation exercise. And that is really why they are such deep and enriching experiences uh, from which once participants have recovered from the initial shock, uh, they always come back and say how really useful they found these crisis simulations and have a wish that their own authorities uh, ran such simulations more often. Thank you, Clive. And thank you, Claire, for sharing your insights and experience in this uh, wide-ranging discussions. Any closing thoughts for our listeners? I think for closing, I would say that the planning process is a very useful one for all members of the financial safety net. Everyone has a role to play in a crisis. And by doing planning, you come together as a group and you understand who does what, whose responsibilities lie where. And that's why the planning process can really help you no matter what type of crisis you're facing at the end of the day. Well, thank you very much. My only closing thought would be to go back to what you said at the outset, Chinwei, and encourage people to uh, find and read those two Toronto Centre notes that we've just published, one on recovery planning and one on resolution. There's a lot more uh, very good material in them, which I'm sure that uh, listeners would find useful. Thank you. Thank you again. I'm here today with Clive Briault and Claire McGuire, and you've been listening to a Toronto Centre podcast on the go. Thank you for joining us.